All right, so welcome back everyone to the Paterno Fellows podcast. My name is Kate Howarth, and today we're going to be chatting with Professor Brad Vivian about his newest book, Campus Misinformation. So welcome to the podcast, Brad, Professor Vivian. <laughs> Either way is fine, and uh, yeah. thanks for having me. I'm uh, this, The book is uh, in many ways kind of about student life, obviously, on college campuses, so I'm uh, excited to talk to people who are doing a podcast from Penn State students to Penn State students. That's awesome. Yeah, so just, you know, getting started, could you tell us a bit about the new book and, you know, just a brief overview of what it's about, what you tackle in it? Absolutely. So probably a lot of listeners and college students and just members of the public in general will be aware that there's been a really vigorous and intense debate about the alleged state of free speech on college campuses and intellectual diversity and so forth uh, in the U.S. media, U.S. popular culture for the last several years. And so kind of to state my position, I'm very worried about issues of free speech and academic freedom and, and what gets taught and how on college campuses. But I think in terms of some of the most heated public discourse, there's a lot of manufactured controversy and that that manufactured controversy is being used as a pretext. You know, you can invoke the idea of, of free speech and let's have more viewpoints. But if you actually really mean very narrow things by those terms, you end up with a lot of what we're seeing in uh, educational spaces today where we're dealing. And I think this is a pretty nonpartisan uh, assessment. We're dealing with kind of a wave across the United States, not only in higher education, but K through 12 education of state interference with what gets taught and how it gets taught, what professors or teachers can say, what students can learn. Uh, the ability of students to take the classes they want is a crucial part of academic freedom. Uh, and so those kinds of narrowly defined appeals to free speech or um, diversity and so forth are being leveraged to create censorship and political interference. Uh, and so I'm concerned about that. So. My specialty is in language and rhetoric and communication. And in a sense, uh, my main concern is how this really heated caustic debate has a kind of script or a language that is in large part misinformation about what students usually do on many college campuses, what professors usually teach on those campuses, and um, the true state of intellectual diversity, teaching research, uh, in higher education now. So my effort is to say, yeah, these are always, they're kernels of legitimate concerns in those debates, but let's have more evidence-based inclusive discussion uh, from a, a wide variety of, of perspectives about the state of free speech and academic freedom in universities. Um, and let's have more perspectives, not less, more evidence, not just sort of selective cherry-picked pieces of evidence. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it sounds incredibly interesting. Um, so did you just land on the topic because it was kind of in the intersection of, you know, your specialty and what you normally focus on? Or is there, you know, something that kind of triggered this mm -hmm. whole wave of you eventually writing the book and doing the research for it and everything like that? Sure. Um, so right at the high point of what I describe in the book, well, there's a time period to this, I would say sort of starting in the mid 2010s, and then especially 2017, 2018, there was a rising and concerted anti-university 
push in this country. And a lot of the discourse I analyzed was about, I call it kind of deeply cynical, very selective, misleading circulation of anecdotes and uh, intentionally hyperbolic stories or narratives about scary things that were allegedly happening on college campuses and scary ideas that most students allegedly had or, or dangerous behaviors that they were engaging in. So a lot of this is, is very much ramped up hyperbole around 2017 and 18 uh, as part of what I try and make the argument is it's a very conscious effort to delegitimize um, open spaces of higher education in the U.S. And at that time, I was serving in two administrative roles at Penn State. One, I was serving in my home uh, department, Communication and Arts and Sciences, as our director of undergraduate studies. And we were overhauling our undergraduate major, and I was trying to sort of just do a good job there, think about high-quality, forward-thinking uh, major like ours for these times. At the same time, I was serving as director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation in the McCourtney Institute for Democracy here. So I was also paying a lot of attention there to the erosion of public discourse about democracy and just the erosion of democracy itself, a lot of messages about that, both here in the US and abroad. And so putting the two roles together, one of the key symptoms of backsliding in democracy and rising authoritarian sentiment is anti-university rhetoric and attacks on higher education and the idea that there are supposedly radical, dangerous ideas being fomented in universities so that the state has to come in and sort of regulate things more tightly and take control. And that's not a polemical opinion in mine. I point to sources in the book. And I think if you ask um, kind of historians of modern authoritarianism and people in sociology kind of across um, the academic fields that are relevant, they'll say, yeah, that's pretty much one of your early warning signs always of rising pro-authoritarian sentiment is trying to have um, a lot of caustic anti-university rhetoric and a lot of rhetoric at the same time against the free press, because both those spaces are ones where ideas sort of more freely circulate. And if you have a system where you have a leader or a party that wants to sort of more tightly control the terms of public discourse and what ideas people have as they come up from youth into society, then you're going to try and regulate those two spheres. So those administrative roles, I was uh, serving in both of those. I was aware of that connection then. And I'm seeing a lot of things in the media and the ways a lot of people are talking about higher education just in these terribly negative um, uh, enraged oftentimes terms with a lot of manufactured controversy. So a lot of this sort of fit that pattern to me. Uh, and I tried to, as I said, I, I tried to look into it and present this book as a way to reframe the debate in a more constructive manner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, would, would like, just because I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this as we're talking about it, do you mm -hmm. think that like a good example of that indication of democratic backsliding and anti-university rhetoric could have been seen in, in historically, maybe in like the Cultural Revolution in China um, in the 70s. Would that be a, a good kind yes, of way of thinking about it? Absolutely. And, you know, there's, I know people like to sort of uh, apply broad categories of sort of leftist or right-wing labels to these things. And the fact that you point to the Cultural Revolution is an indicator of 
the degree to which both extreme left and right wing movements that are end up being pro-authoritarian or totalitarian. They sort of go beyond those typical definitions and they tend to end up at similar places. So, um, you know, uh, extreme fascism in Europe in the 30s and 40s was all about first season control of sort of cultural, educational, journalistic institutions. And then we had the same thing in, in the Cultural Revolution, absolutely. Um, and then even closer to our time, well, the Soviet Union was very much about this as well. Uh, and one of the reasons actually sort of coming dovetailing with this anti-university rhetoric that is circulating in the US in the late 20 teens is the fact that some of that comes abroad from places like Russia and Eastern Europe. And the connection there with the Soviet Union is that when the Soviet Union collapses in the late 80s, early 90s, and society begins to open up, it's still, Russia's still very, a lot of scholars will say, still very much kind of, people have a Soviet way of thinking. They're not used to new ideas. And so what are the institutions in a, in a space where society is opening up, it's being less totalitarian, where new Western ideas about individual rights and about the idea that everybody's equal and that we should have non-corrupt popular representation, where are those ideas going to first filter into a society where a lot of people are used to sort of being obedient to the authorities? Um, it's going to be in the free press and in universities. So a lot of what has happened more recently, that is that there's no surprise that really strong anti-university attacks have happened in those former Soviet spheres. And they're sort of gravitating back across Europe to other parts of the West now. Yeah, which is just an interesting transition of those trends just globally, which is really fascinating. Would you be able to give some examples of like the anti-university rhetoric and stuff like that, that you saw in your administrative roles or that you've kind of come across in your research when you've been working on this? Sure. And just in general, there, again, this kind of language will probably be familiar to a lot of people because it's become a polemical staple of a lot of superheated punditry about higher education. So the language uh, or the key terms, the buzz terms of saying undergraduate students are badly coddled that they are easily emotionally triggered and they have fundamentally irrational social and political ideas now, uh, or that they're being indoctrinated into these radical ideas. In addition, a lot of the most caustic political debate we have now in the nation, um, terms like cancel culture, for example, or the debate over wokeism and so forth, or this idea that something called critical race theory uh, is especially scary and should be taken out of public school. It should be censored. All of these key terms I'm describing, um, the first observation is that they all come out of originally narratives applied to college campuses to say what a danger those campuses are and what radical, irrational, overly emotional spaces they've become. Uh, and then the political uptake, the hyperpartisan political uptake of those terms they, all, they now get used to sort of refer to many things in our culture, but my argument is they're always buzz terms to refer back to this idea that universities are now threats to traditional ways of life in the U.S., to patriotism, 
um, that there's almost sort of a state of emergency where only these especially radical views are being taught now. And what a terrible thing that is in terms of the future well-being of the country as a whole. Um, so that's, that's the kind of language I focus on uh, apropos of my specialties. But in terms of the connections, like what, what I was noticing, um, and I continue to still learn more and more about this, what I was noticing in terms of that vocabulary then, is I, I bet a lot of listeners will be used to that only as a feature of U.S. public discourse and uh, partisan debates about the, uh, the state of free speech on uh, college campuses here. There's many thematic connections to things I was just describing in, say, Russia, parts of Eastern Europe, and countries now like Poland and Hungary, where very similar arguments and very similar key terms get made, um, get used to describe students and faculty. And so if we think about in the U.S., what are the focus, uh, excuse me, what are the targets of these uh, heated anti-university attacks? Um, there are programs to make college campuses more diverse, more inclusive. Uh, there are programs to sort of talk about newer academic fields like African-American studies, Middle Eastern studies, sex and gender studies, which are actually very popular with a lot of students. So there are fields that have, the targets are things that have to do with culture, with uh, efforts, and some of these are successful, some of these, they always, everything always deserves criticism and scrutiny. But all of the main targets then are efforts to, in a sense, talk about in open university settings, how to make US society and how to make traditional US institutions um, based on merit, of course, but more diverse, more equal, where everybody's treated the same and everybody's recognized as human beings with individual rights and where we're moving toward a truly multicultural democracy. Those are the targets. Um, Chinese archaeology from centuries ago is not the target. Uh, say, you know, economic theories are not the targets, traditional historical fields. And those targets are the same, kind of as I was referring to earlier, uh, as the targets that we see in anti-university campaigns in Eastern Europe and Russia, um, in Turkey, Brazil deserves to be mentioned here. Um, it's the idea that, well, now we're talking about truly beyond a certain cultural line. If you're saying that all people of all sexual gender orientations, religious backgrounds, uh, uh, people of color and so forth, everybody is truly equal and deserves all these rights that goes a little too far in terms of some traditional beliefs in those countries, particularly again in those nations where if they're not used to thinking about, everybody has these essential individual rights like we do under the US Constitution and they should be protected as proactively as possible. That idea of sort of equality and individual liberties is not as deep in the soil there, um, culturally speaking in many respects. So those are the exact same targets then and that have been used in, as pretexts in Hungary, Poland, Russia, Brazil to either have the state take much tighter control of, of the universities uh, or literally in some cases have them closed, shut down. Yeah, like that's, it's an interesting phenomenon just to see across the board. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think it's also interesting to consider um, the effect of the U.S.'s free media versus, as you kind of brought up earlier, the free press kind of goes hand in hand with it. 
the effect of the U.S.'s free media and increased polarization across the country could be having. Have you seen any kind of relation between the trends of increased polarization within the U.S. and then instances of this anti-university rhetoric and the backsliding and spread of campus misinformation in general? Mm -hmm. Well, um, a couple of things on that. One thing I'll say is that, yes, I think the the idea of either um, maintained confidence in U.S. education uh, or increasing cynicism and negative views about it certainly tracks along stereotypical liberal conservative party lines. Um, I think there's a lot of polling now that is bearing that out. In my book, I'm not concerned about any of these issues from a stereotypical liberal conservative, whatever position it might be. I'm interested in it from the basis of evidence in terms of how this kind of rhetoric gets popularized in order then to normalize uh, restrictions of free speech and academic freedom on college campuses. Again, sort of just invoking that label, it's free speech, I can do whatever I want, take up a lot of oxygen, and that includes kind of fomenting a lot of conflict and controversy on college campuses that then kind of spoils everything for everybody. I don't think that's a robust defense of free speech and academic freedom. So I'm interested in these things, not from that sort of stereotypical partisan perspective one way or another, but just because I think they're they're dangerous, they're anti-academic uh, freedom and anti-democratic exchange of ideas in one of the most important sort of spaces we have for those ideas uh, and younger generations coming up and getting used to openly debate them and so forth in a more constructive manner. Um, so I will say, though, that in terms of sort of polarization, a lot of the kind of manufactured controversy that I'm describing in the book about college campuses, it extends from and it mirrors prior manufactured controversies about the state of news media or political journalism in the country. So one of the kind of strongest campaigns uh, that we've had that is literally kind of shaping a lot of hyper polemical discourse about college campuses now is the idea that the mission of universities should be to provide as much as possible balanced or ideologically equal time between stereotypically liberal and conservative viewpoints. And that's a kind of argument that was traditionally made about U.S. political journalism from the 70s, 80s, 90s forward. And a lot of independent scholars of journalism and the news media will say, whoever kind of started that campaign and however sympathetic different people may be to it, what's, what it's created is literally what we see on all the different cable news channels, for example, and hyperpartisan media. It's created kind of a theater of debate among hyperpartisan talking points, as opposed to in-depth investigative journalism, more fact-based about how political institutions really work. So the kind of polarization comes in with kind of this sense, I think, that, that is happening right now of, well, that's work to kind of make the news media highly profitable, theatrical, spectacular, sensationalized, a kind of theater for these manufactured debates, which are, by the way, very much scripted. These are people getting paid on radio and TV to, 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 to have very caustic arguments just for the theatrical sake of doing that. And so I think there's a lot of interest now in kind of 
um, rolling back for hyperpartisan reasons, publicly funded education as we're used to it, and higher education where you have many different paths of exploration on many different subject matters and all of these ideas coexisting to kind of turn it into um, something that is more stereotypically based in partisan identity, where it's sort of universities are these theater for sensationalized debates among those polarized talking points. Um, and again, that's what you oftentimes find in other systems where if you want to sort of spread negative views about higher education, you try and develop these really cynical, politically motivated narratives about what's, what's allegedly going on there. So that, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, like, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that it's interesting how, you know, these media stages that are not directly connected to college campuses at all, other than bringing them up in their own sensationalized debates, have such an effect on campus culture and how students then interact with each other in terms of free speech and different aspects around that. Um, mm -hmm. Another thought that I had that I was curious about was when here at Penn State, we just debate, you know, topics of free speech, what, you know, can and can't be espoused on college campuses. You know, there often comes up the argument of Penn State being a public university. And so it's beholden to state and federal laws in a way that private private universities are not. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious, is there a difference in how public and private universities are affected by this based in, in any part based off of how they're structured as private versus public universities? Or you know, do you, have you seen a difference in general on those it's a great, Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the public-private distinction should always be um, born in mind. Um, in, in many respects, that can be a kind of gray area that legal scholars will, will take you into in more depth than I could. But I think our, our good, sensible, basic operating coordinates are to understand in, in terms of this debate, a couple of things about private universities in particular. One of the pieces of information, I dis misinformation, excuse me, about higher education now in the US I discuss is this idea that all colleges and universities are the same. And that so we have many broad sweeping claims that get focused on, it, it sometimes in particular private liberal arts institutions uh, in Ivy League campuses and whatnot that have, and I don't, I don't, know if this is true or not, but they have this reputation for being fiercely liberal and so forth. Um, so a lot of the attention gets focused on them. The thing I try and remind people of in the book is that we have almost about 5,000 different institutions of post-secondary education, higher learning in this country. And so for example, community colleges, HBCUs, um, all kinds of different state university systems, small and large. There's an enormous variety going on in terms of U.S. higher education. And so just if you appreciate that fact, including all those private institutions within it, it's very difficult to make these sweeping claims that most or all professors are like this, or most students think this way now and only want this, or, and, and all college campuses are this other way. Um, the other aspect is that despite the fact that, yes, private universities are not as beholden to fulfill um, certain legal statutes associated with the First Amendment as rigorously as universities that receive public fundings. They're, they're not as obligated just by the letter of the law 
but most of them do so anyway for different reasons. If you wanna recruit, attract students to come to pay high tuitions and so forth, you need to give them a very positive experience, a kind of open and inclusive campus environment. And so one of the additional pieces of misinformation that I think is circulating around there uh, in the public is about diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives or policies on university campuses. And I think the idea is that only certain types of campuses with certain political cultures have embraced those policies, when in fact, something I share in the back of the book is that, for example, Virginia Military Institute has these policies. Um, there's a coalition, a very large coalition of Bible-based Christian schools that are private that have adopted these policies. Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma, for example, and others like it um, in Dallas, in Kentucky. So these are stereotypes. If you want to use the language of stereotypes, I think they're stereotypically Bible-based conservative Christian schools. But the idea of, well, we welcome all these um, diverse backgrounds and so forth, that is a measure to, of the extent to which a lot of private universities actually still sort of say, yes, we protect free speech and First Amendment rights and academic freedom as robustly as any public university because we want to create a good climate for the students to come here and keep having that pipeline of new students and have them have a, a positive experience, particularly in an era of incredibly high student debt and tuition prices. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's interesting to consider that kind of, I hadn't previously considered that kind of different ends of the spectrum of like the, I feel like a lot of us have heard about those, those kind of stereotypical liberal, like small liberal arts colleges, and they're always, you know, very, they're just, they're categorized in a certain way. And then, but I hadn't considered the the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like the, the Bible schools, but that's fascinating that they also um, have these similar policies regarding free speech, regardless of whether they're private. Um, mm-hmm. It's just super fascinating to me. And it's interesting, especially mentioning Virginia Military Institute, because I think they only started allowing women in the, um, they were like one of the later adopters of a co-ed uh, university mm-hmm. setting. So them also having that policy is interesting, like the adoption of liberal policies by institutions as a means of recruitment methods. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Just fascinating. Um, if, if I can say one more thing about yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. On that topic. So for women, for people of color, uh, for people from different religious backgrounds and so forth, we, we should have, this is a very good example of where I think we should have a much more um, sort of robust evidence-based national dialogue about these diversity, inclusion, and equity policies and programs and where they come from. So two things can be true here in my mind. I try to make the case. One is that some of these policies are effective uh, for reasons that university communities like. Some deserve substantive criticism. We should look at them on a case-by-case basis. But where did they come from? Why do different institutions have them? Give a shout out, for example, to a lot of uh, schools in the SEC, uh, a lot of Southern State University campuses have them. And if you think of the background there, we're really within, there are many uh, Americans, specifically Black American former students alive, who uh, they're still alive, and they were the first generation to try to desegregate, literally risking their lives in many cases, to desegregate those college and university campuses. So University of Mississippi 
has done very admirable work in terms of some of its internal policies on a very much bipartisan basis, because those sorts of programs and policies then are ways to say, by law, constitutionally, um, we're going to dismantle the machinery of desegregation. And that's a free speech issue. If you have a substantially segregated campus where large portions of the population that would ordinarily qualify can't come in, they can't express themselves. They can't help to enrich the academic environment and the environment of dialogue and learning from many different viewpoints on those uh, campuses. So as you were mentioning sort of women in VMI, for example, you know, there's a lot of public and private universities in the Northeast as well, a lot of Ivy League institutions, they have those policies because they too uh, were discriminatory in, in a variety of uh, vicious other ways. So we can sort of think where we are now. We're within one living, uh, one lifetime, generationally speaking, of the generation that began desegregation. And from that standpoint, it's ongoing work. And these tools then, I think there's a lot of criticism of them from many different perspectives. Uh, but that's why they're there. They're not there. Uh, and they might be there in surprising places for a lot of people who think they're only on certain types of campuses for certain types of partisan reasons. They're there because of the broader historical background of ongoing desegregation. That's fascinating that it's just the, the way that that's structured and how it's continuing on. Mm -hmm. I think it makes me wonder um, whether instances of the distribution of misinformation on college campuses and focus by mass media and other aspects of the United States um, political sphere focusing on university efforts. If, if there's these trends of, you know, desegregation and justifiable, you know, diversity, at least in my opinion, justifiable diversity, mm -hmm. equity, inclusion efforts to try to continue to make these campuses more inclusive to students who feel like they need to, who, who deserve to be heard. Could there be some kind of connection between this rise of misinformation being distributed and espoused on and about college campuses and college education to kind of in its own way combat maybe these these desegregation efforts or these these attempts to push university and then the next generation of like leaders and everything towards a more traditional viewpoint that links back to these more historical established means of mm -hmm. going about things. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think absolutely. And I think that's, it's pretty easy to read into some of the strategies that are being used. And again, I refer to the, um, state-mandated censorship of educational materials in universities and in K through 12 schools now that's being uh, either proposed or ratified in many legislatures across the country. They're, again, focused. They're not focused on a broad array of educational materials. They're focused on just the idea that we would talk about equality between uh, all peoples and so forth, all sexes and genders or whatever it might be in, in kinds of life experiences. And there are historians of the civil rights era, the desegregation era, and the massive, massive resistance to those efforts at the time that will say, yep, these are kinds of the same things in school boards or in um, university boards of trustees and so forth that people tried to ban in response to the initial waves of desegregation. But yes, as, as you mentioned in the media, um, a lot of the kinds of controversy I described 
as being in the late 20 teens and then in the early 2020s now is intentionally manufactured from online spaces. So the idea that you can have hyperpartisan ideological media now that will sort of create college speaking tours, announce speaking engagements, and then try and whip up a lot of controversy, say, in essence, I'm going to come and give a speech about how part of your college campus, you are less than human, or you are not equal, you should not have these rights and so forth. And it's going to be where I shame and embarrass you publicly and, and so on. Um, that is a very online thing that was originally used. If you've heard of Gamergate in 2014, around that time, the idea was that you can use that sort of strategy of intimidation and free speech. I can say whatever I want to say in order to make gaming culture uh, or in the gaming industry hostile to certain quote unquote minority groups and women. Uh, who are trying to work their way more into that culture. That was very successful. It made online spaces, use that sort of media platform to make online spaces very inhospitable um, for uh, a lot of women and people of color involved in that gaming culture. And so it's, it's there are documented connections here where the media is being used to sort of create this spectacle of a one-time controversy that everybody focuses on. And the idea is to have it go as terribly as possible, not to make it actually an inclusive, real robust discussion of ideas, because then people will fixate on, oh, that's what's going on in universities right now, how terrible it is. And so there's that kind of extremist use of the media. And what I've also examined in the book is how we have a lot of people who are trying to describe themselves as centrists, as public intellectuals, who will try and split the difference. Uh, and this shows up in, in national journalism and op-eds and so forth and say, well, maybe all these undergraduates are irrational and maybe they're all uh, easily triggered and so forth, uh, which is ignoring the sort of context that these are intentionally manufactured, ugly episodes. And I have issues with how people respond to them in a way that would just continue to escalate. But I think we should also just sort of think about the ethics and the issues of responsibility of the people who intentionally try to escalate and create ugly conflicts in the first place. Uh, they bear proportional responsibility for their speech. If you're gonna have dehumanizing rhetoric that intentionally tries to use the media and then on-site events to incite people, be honest about that and think about your ethics and responsibility as well. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, especially how how different people respond to different, I know there have been some event, events at Penn State over the past couple of years that have triggered, you know, different responses and caused a lot of debate among students about, you know, misinformation, the spread of information, both online and in general. And it's been interesting to see the different debates and standpoints on what the best way to approach that is. So I guess mm -hmm. my, my next question would kind of be, you know, if there's this misinformation just being spread and there's all of this, both extreme, like extremist, but also anti-university rhetoric that's going around, that's also mm -hmm. influencing how college students handle themselves and handle interactions on campus. Like as Penn State students, like how could we be more conscious of this and what's going on? And how should we, how do you, how do you think we should approach this? I guess is my question. Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, I try not to have too hard and fast rules for anybody. I think I, I am a firm adherent to the idea that more speech is better, but that also the thing about a university campus is that we have many, many different forums to take advantage of uh, in terms of free speech and expressing ideas openly and disagreeing in a constructive manner. And I think that's the shame of when we have these intentionally manufactured controversies so that you on a given college campus, you have national media reporting on an intentionally manufactured, ugly incident that might happen, you know, transpires on one evening out of the whole calendar year. And so you're at University Park, and if you can imagine on the same day that that ugly incident takes place, how many literally just in this one location, university classes happened in how many different academic fields. And on that same evening, how many different cultural performances or lectures were taking place. And on that same day, how many different faculty members met and how many different committees in order to think about the shared governance and have good discussions about the university or student organizations, how many of them met. So this kind of super hyper focus on one incident, one, and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, bad behavior from any perspective should be excused. They should be dealt with uh, proportionally. But as a class of institutions, the reason why there's such a strong motivation to create these ugly reputations for campuses and higher education in general is because from the perspective of sort of pro-authoritarian or more culturally rigid uh, groups, university campuses are a threat precisely because they're relatively open compared to a lot of society. As a class of institutions, the free press and universities by and large protect First Amendment freedoms much better on a day-to-day -day basis uh, than other parts of society do. And that means they're difficult to sort of manage if you want only certain things to get said only in certain ways. So I'd have students remember that, that students and faculty and universities uh, don't just have to respond in a diametrically aggressive manner on intentionally manufactured occasions. Um, there are many different opportunities before and after, as well as during, to have expressions of these ideas in constructive conversations. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd sort of emphasize then is to kind of think about not just um, issues of free speech in a broad sense, but I'd love for us as not only, you know, communities of higher education, but in the nation at large to have a much better public dialogue in terms of quality dialogue about what the First Amendment really entails. The First Amendment has a lot of different competing rights or liberties depending on how people would phrase it. And so free speech can be very broad. It can be very abstract. Free speech, when you sort of say, well, I have the freedom to say whatever I want. Yes, absolutely you do. And then people have a lot of freedom or liberty to respond as they want. That includes um, creative acts of nonviolence, that includes dissent, that includes passionate counter speech and protest. So we've gotten to a point too, in terms of what I call campus misinformation with this idea that, um, the idea that only certain people have kind of a right to stand up and speak, and that somehow if you, you protest that, or you engage in creative nonviolent disruptions or, or, and so forth, or acts of civil dis disobedience in society at large, 
that somehow these aren't protected by the First Amendment. Somehow those are against free speech. Actually, they're forms of free speech that are just as protected and they're not protected in authoritarian systems. They're some of our most essential democratic liberties, the idea to speak, but also to speak back. So I think having a much more kind of evidence-based detailed look at what, what we talk about when we meet, we use terms like free speech and what we mean when we say this part of the First Amendment, that one, uh, would give us much more detail and texture and help recognize everybody's competing rights uh, in these relatively open spaces of university settings. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, given our respective time constraints, I think that, you know, this could be a good place to wrap up, but thank you so much for chatting with me about your book, to, uh, Professor Vivian. I just really appreciate it. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate uh, being able to appear. The thoughts, opinions, and beliefs expressed during this podcast episode are those of the individuals and not representative of the stances of the Paterno Fellows Podcast, the Paterno Fellows Program, Penn State College of Liberal Arts, or Penn State University. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Paterno Fellows Podcast. <laughs>